Please uh, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue on looking at what Jesus had to say here in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I want to talk to you about dying from thirst and hunger and eating and drinking what is good for you. How many times did your mama say, are you eating right? You know, you went off to college, you come home, what's she talk about? So um, Jesus is going to get at the issue of hunger and thirst. Let me take a moment and pray. Father in heaven, this is your word. And this is just as much alive today because it is your word as it was the day Jesus said it on a hill. Lord, would you quicken us, make our minds alert, open the ears of our heart to hear what you are saying, what is so, so necessary for us in our high and holy calling as followers of Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I'd like to uh, just read verses uh, 2 through 6, or, I'm sorry, 7, in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As, um, as we think about the flow of what Jesus is unpacking here, you can see that he moves. There, there's actually a change that takes place. You notice in the first few verses, he's really talking about difficulty and hardship and, and suffering. And then the verses that follow, he gets into more specifics. But in these two verses, it's more positive in a sense. He, he gets right at what, what, is, um, what is on his heart to communicate to you and me today. When I was in high school, in St. Petersburg, Florida, I was indeed a rebel. And I was running from God for probably three years. And uh, I ended up coming in contact with a man who had a ministry to high school students. I was 17 years old at the time, and, and I was really quite messed up. But what the Lord did through that man that I came in contact with was he began to have an impact on me. And what I was hungry for and what I was thirsty for, I was looking in all the wrong places to find it. And he said these words one day, is your only purpose to be born, to go to school, to graduate, to get married, to get a career, to get old, to retire and die, is that the goal of your life? Kind of an empty, empty question, isn't it? It's a haunting question. But um, this, this brother not only taught me how to share my faith, which I 
was scared stupid to do. But through that experience, he actually helped me to do it. And when I led a person to the Lord for the first time, I just thought, man, I've never experienced anything this significant in my life. And, and so I ended up watching and talking to my friend for probably two or three months and ended up saying, I'm going to go to Columbia International University and I'm going to learn more about Christ and, and hopefully become more effective in sharing my faith. So off I went. Though I was a Christian, I was undisciplined. I was not prepared for the academic rigors of study. And so I fell behind in my studies. And it was that following summer. And I wasn't even sure that I wanted to be in ministry. I just knew that I wanted to learn and so it was that following summer, I went to Chicago to Moody Bible Institute. And that was a, one of those moments in my life that the Lord changed me. So I arrive in, in, at Moody, I'm wandering around, check into my room, and then I go down to the library and I'm milling around and I found an old Bible in a glass case and on the inside flap of that Bible was written the following words. From 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then the, this following statement. The world has yet to see what God can do with a man who is fully consecrated to him. By God's grace, I aim to be that man, signed D.L. Moody. And as a... I think I was, uh, I was 19 years old at the time. I looked at that as a college student, and I th thought to myself, I'm not there, but that's where I need to be. And that was one of those times where I began to wake up to the importance of being an avid follower of Jesus Christ. I learned the story just recently of what was behind that statement. That uh, there was a guy named Henry Varley who was in England, and Moody had gone over there and did a series of preaching. Uh, it was, I think he was there three months to thousands, and th it was kind of like Billy Graham in that day. And it was at the, at the, in the process of being there, he, one of the guys he was with was Varley, he had said some words to him. And, um, and so when Moody went back to Chicago after he finished those three months, here's what happened. He was so changed by one simple phrase, what we had on the screen, that he came back to England specifically to see Varley to communicate this. He said to him, don't you remember saying, Moody, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him? Varley said, I don't remember those exact words. 
By the way, you never know when you say something godly to somebody what impact it will have. Ah, Moody said. (laughs) These were the words sent to my soul from you, through you, from the living God. As I crossed the wide Atlantic, he said the boards of the deck of that vessel, these words were engraved upon them. And when I reached Chicago... He said, the very paving stones, they too were marked with Moody. The world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. So he said to to Varley, under the power of those words, I have come back to England. It was a year later. And I felt that I must not let more time pass until I let you know how God has used your words in my inmost soul. And that's why he wrote that in the cover of his Bible. I share those words with you because I think what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is that these are not just lists of nice ethical behaviors and things to do. He's getting at something far deeper, not at the tail end of his earthly ministry, but at the very beginning. He is now, it is his inaugural address And in that, he is going to speak to many, but he's speaking specifically to all those who believe and will follow Jesus. By the way, Moody was not a great theologian, but he led a lot of people to Jesus, and he left behind a great academic institution, and he left behind a missions emphasis that has endured to this day. So, I want to leave off with Moody. I want to talk to you about somebody far greater. What his address was to to my life in that day, my brothers and sisters, someone far greater here, let's look at what Jesus says. And please, you've heard this thousands of times perhaps, but hear it with fresh ears. The Sermon on the Mount was meant to crush us on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, it was to inspire us in following Jesus with a passion. And so I'd like us to look at the the context of what Jesus is saying here because I tended to think of this as... I didn't, I, I had never been able to sort out until recently, was this just a statement about God's preference or was this actually something that he not only promises to do but will do in your life and mine if we follow Jesus? And so Jesus kind of lights a match and throws it out there And it begins to catch fire in the hearts of his disciples and of those who were in that crowd that day. Listen to Matthew chapter 5 verse 20. Jesus is going to say two surprising things in this context. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Never? And he looks at the rank and file 
top leadership of the country who were there that day. And he says, unless your righteousness goes higher than theirs, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Oh, come on. Now, I know, I know what we're all thinking. We're, uh, we all say okay to ourselves. All right, I get it. Um, he's saying, I got to be better than the others I compare myself to. Well, that's true. One commentator said, Jesus' critique at this point was not that they weren't good. It was that they weren't good enough. But I'd like to add to that comment. I think what he's saying is, if you're failing to, to be good enough, you are failing utterly and completely to be good at all. So the Lord did not lower the standard to his followers. The kingdom of God, when the king comes, he doesn't end this series of, of messages that were recorded here. He does not give us just suggestions. He's saying, you've got to excel. We'll unpack that. But then a few verses later in chapter 5, verse 48, now he takes and raises the bar higher. He says, you're going to have to be better than the ones around you. Now he turns around and he raises it <laughs> immeasurably higher. Listen to verse 48 of chapter 5. And it's the first word in the sentence. It kind of sticks in your crawl. You, therefore... You. Don't think of the person next to you. Nobody else. You. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. <laughs> say what? <laughs> you mean to say that I've got to not only have more righteousness than these guys that I looked up to who have the PhDs in Bible study and theology. He says, you are called upon to be, as, to, to be good as your heavenly father is good to be perfect. I like what Sproul goes on to say. He says, Jesus doesn't really mean that, what, that we're called to be perfect because he understands that no one's perfect. That's not his point. Everyone falls short of the glory of God, so he, have, he must have meant something else. To which Sproul goes on to say, we know that we can't be holy the way God is. He said, they, we, we can't reach perfection until we get to heaven. Not in our behavior and not in our nature. Jesus knows that, but Sproul goes on to say, he knows this ethic is a difficult one. He also knows that we adjust our personal standards to fit our level of performance. We all do that. But he says every last one of us has done that. He says Jesus is simply saying God does not change his standard. Mm. Okay, so, so he says when I, when I ask somebody are you perfect? Because they indicate to him, you know, well, I don't need Jesus. Sproul says, always ask him, are you perfect? And he says, most people will admit, oh, no, no, I know I'm not perfect. And, and what you'll hear are a series of, of excuses to err as human is one of, one of the favorites. 
But he says, here's how I respond to that. He said, I ask them, if you are not perfect, or I say to them, if you're not perfect, you need Jesus in order to survive the judgment of God. Mm. So I'm asking the question as we look at these, ver- these two verses, is Jesus only talking about justification. Now, you know what justification is. It means it's a legal act. It's, it's something that Jesus, as your representative, did in his coming and living a perfect life, and he has the record, and then he dies on the cross. Your sins were placed upon him. He was not guilty, but he became the, the guilt bearer. And so what was done to him by God the Father in that moment of his suffering and death God viewed us differently from that day forward. He paid in full. That's justification. You and I have nothing to do with that. It is strictly external to us. So when Jesus says to be perfect, is he just talking about justification? And I think the answer is pretty straightforward. Certainly he's talking about that. You see, when When Jesus unpacks this, as we'll see going through this in the coming weeks, he is talking about justification. That verdict has been rendered for us. Do you agree with that? Yes, no? Is this a Presbyterian church? What? Okay, you can loosen up a little bit. Of course. We know we we can't earn it. This is not about earning it. This is about something he does, but this, there's more to it than just that. Jesus did not come just to give us fire insurance, remember. He came to make a difference in my life and in yours. And so justification is also, he's also speaking about what we could call practical righteousness. I will say that it does seem like in the modern Christian era, much of what we do talk about is justification, but we don't talk about how we live. And so, if I could take it to that next slide, I think Jesus is in these two verses challenging us to take steps Step, the first step is he's saying, nurture a hunger and a thirst for God's righteousness. Nurture. That's something we feed upon. And so when he says in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Satisfaction. Ha. Huh. How many people... In this room, how many of us are truly, deeply satisfied in this life? When he talks about blessed are those who hunger and thirst, he's describing something that does not come naturally. Let's face it. it my hunger for righteousness is not a natural response as a human being. But it can and will come supernaturally through trust in Jesus Christ alone. 
And as Calvin points out in, his, in, in one of his commentaries on this verse, he says, this, this blessed are those who hunger and thirst, they shall be satisfied. He says the context, obviously, as I mentioned before, is suffering and hardship. If life was easy, we would not naturally hunger for more. But because we hunger and thirst, it means we're not getting what we want, really. And so we want something more, but there's the rub. What is it that I want? What am I striving for? As Calvin says, though their distressing anxiety exposes them to the ridicule of others, yet it is a certain preparation for happiness or blessedness, for at length they shall be satisfied. God will one day listen to their groans and satisfy their just desire for him. I learned this years ago from a Christian counselor that when I was in the doctor program, his, uh, Bill Crabb was his name. He was the brother of Larry Crabb. And, um, and he, talked, he, he taught us how to see human beings kind of like an iceberg. You know, an, an iceberg, all you see, here, here's the, the iceberg in the ocean, but you're only seeing the tip. You're not seeing all the big stuff that is down below. And he said, most of the time, we look at our lives and we only see the surface stuff and we don't understand what's beneath the surface. To which he taught us, he said, people long deeply. They are driven, they're thirsty, they're hungry. In fact, he said, selfishness, self-centeredness, and self-indulgence have their roots not in the longings of the soul. It's not wrong to long for something. That's part of being the image of God. He says, it's not rooted in the longings of our soul, but rather the arrogant determination to act independently of God in the pursuit of satisfaction. Or to put it in another way, the problem is this. In our hunger and thirst, we are moving typically in a direction for the wrong in the wrong direction for the wrong reason now i know you've never had that problem right notice how jesus says all the way through here blessed 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 what uh, seth unpacked that last week lloyd jones martin lloyd jones who's a british uh, preacher in England. Um, in England, his, his preaching was in London. He preached 30 sermons on this content, 30 sermons. And he goes on to say, according to the scriptures, happiness, that is blessedness, is never something that should be sought directly. It is always something that results from seeking something else. You get that? If you're after getting blessed, this is not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, seek, hunger, thirst for God's righteousness. And what is God's righteousness? Are we talking, um, how can I seek something that I don't understand? And what what is righteousness really? Is it rule keeping? Is it chasing after religions? 
Is it principles? Is it, is it what our culture says? Is it, a, is it a social justice focus? Is it trying to find utopia in this world? Is it calling out racism as if that's the only sin of our time? The answer to that is it's none of that. Seeking righteousness includes ethics and morals. But that is not what this is about. What this is, Jesus is talking about first, is it justification? Absolutely. Look at a list. I mean, we're, we're, we're going through the list. Look at this. Then what is he talking about if he's saying, okay, when you come to know me, when you trust in me, you are declared justified. And to be in a right relationship to God because Jesus has freely given you what he came here to give you. When you know that for sure, and when he then gives you his Holy Spirit as the seal and the proof and the evidence that you have received what Jesus accomplished on the cross, there's more to what Jesus is describing. It means the process has now begun Now that you're secure and forgiven and given his righteousness, the process has begun of what is called sanctification, but it's the process of learning to love what Jesus loves and to hate what Jesus hates. Uh, A chicken. If you chop a chicken's head off because you're going to serve him up for dinner tonight... You know what happens, the chicken will simply run around with his head cut off and, you know, blood squirting out. You get the picture. The chicken really doesn't know he's dead yet, right? And eventually, he falls. Well, Jesus has cut off sin, but the pain of learning to hate what hurts us in order to begin loving what God designed us to love is a painful process. So this is the beginning of what that change is all about. But where is it? What is it? What does it mean to to hunger and thirst for righteousness? We will be filled. What is it? 1 John 1. John in his old age says... What you have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. One, one, uh, one preacher said it like this. He said, to be hungry is not enough. I must be really starving to know what is in his heart Towards me. When the prodigal son was hungry, you remember what he did? He ate the pods that the pigs were feeding on. But when he was starving, he came to Jesus. His, uh, he came to his father, which represented coming to Jesus. So Lloyd Jones raises the question is this all describing justification? The answer is. Yes. Well, when do you get that righteousness? Immediately. That is, when you come to faith, and as you begin to grow in your understanding, you understand that is something 
immediately has been given to me from this point forward, and it stays and remains with me. Now, on that understanding, that hunger and thirst will begin to change. And here is a bit of a paradox. In the paradox, I'm, I, the reason it's a paradox is because on the one hand then, if he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Well, it's immediate in one sense. But you spend a lifetime still pursuing and growing and feeding upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Looking for the day when you're going to get it finally, totally, completely at the second coming of Jesus. And, but in this process of life, your hunger and thirst at times will increase. And at times, the Lord will bless you immensely. Other times, in the hardship of life, you will go through times when you're ready to give up. I know, you don't experience that, right? Has life been easy for you every day and every month and every year of your life? And so Jesus, understanding that we are thirsty, and sometimes even as followers, we quench our thirst in things that do not satisfy. Listen to what Jesus said in John 7, 37. <laughs> On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, and listen to what Jesus said. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, he, is, he said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Can I ask you a question? Where is Jesus today? Is he glorified? Then has the spirit been given? Yeah. And so that was a redemptive historical statement. We now live on the other side of that. We live with the Holy Spirit having been poured out upon this church, his church, the church worldwide, the church in history. And so we know that his promise that... Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Wait, how can this be? I don't know that I have ever fully understood or lived as if I really believe this. Do you really believe this? He doesn't talk about a trickle. He talks about rivers of living water coming out of the believer because of the work and presence of the Holy Spirit in that believer. Wow. Philippians 3, uh, the, the hungering for righteousness is expressed in different ways by Paul. He says, I counted everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And he goes on to say, I live in such a way that I am seeking to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, this righteousness from God that depends upon faith. But I press on. He's talking about the function of an athlete trying to get, get across the line first. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. <laughs> wow. So he says, I'm forgetting what's behind me. Have you forgotten what's behind you? Are you still plagued by your past? He says to us, forget what's behind you. He says, strain to what is ahead. I think in Paul's words, this is exactly what Jesus was describing that day. How do I then hunger and seek and, and, and drink righteousness. I come to Jesus. That's clear. I come to terms with what Jesus has accomplished for me. That's clear. I understand that he gave me his Holy Spirit. And I am not to be passive about this. He is enabling me every day to live this out. And experience it. Not by watching others succeed. Myself, you, everybody in this room, you need to be so, so th thrust forward in a pursuit of his righteousness. That is really a pursuit of Jesus Christ. So you experience that by time in the word, by time in prayer, by time in, in persevering in the good and the bad seasons of life. And understand, too, that there will be moments as you walk with Jesus day in and day out when he will richly bless you with things that are, you'll, you'll never see it coming until it happens. You've had some of those experiences. We don't seek experience. We seek him. Even David said, when shall I come and appear before God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, he says. He talks to himself. And so we, we see not only in the Old Testament, we see in the New Testament, we see what Paul said, to seek, to pursue, to hunger, to thirst, to find satisfaction in Jesus is what Jesus is talking about in this text. But remember, that includes practical righteousness. It's the experience of transformation. There was a guy named Goodwin who taught at both, um, he taught at Cambridge and Oxford, who many years ago, he said the following words. He'd been a Christian for a long time. He said, there is a light that overcometh a man's soul and assureth him that God is his and he is God's, and that God loveth him from everlasting. It is a light beyond the light of ordinary faith. In other words, <laughs> it is the fruit of God's spirit to produce in you and me a passion that will not be satisfied because I always want to know more about Jesus. Amen? 
And that is what Jesus is holding before his disciples that day. And by the way, this stuff is all unpacked all over the epistles, what Jesus said here. But the second verse, 5-7, and I'll finish quickly with this. You see, if the first part was dealing with suffering, then verse 6 is dealing with hunger and thirst for righteousness and you shall be satisfied, then what now follows in this verse is very simple. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Why would he say that following the pursuit and hunger for righteousness? Answer, because once you come to terms with Jesus and you are growing in that understanding, then he's saying that you have been, and here it is, blessed are the merciful. The Greek word there means a merciful person, descriptive of his character, his nature. Then Jesus switches to a verb that's a future tense verb. So very simply, he's saying, blessed are you who are the merciful ones. That's what you're like now. And he says, you shall be given mercy in the future. So entering the blessing of understanding Jesus' mercy. Jesus promises mercy to his children who encounter him in faith and then give it away to difficult people. Show mercy now. You get mercy in the future, both in this life and in the one to come, and in eternity before the great white throne judgment. So receiving the mercy of Jesus is the beginning of the ability to show mercy. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is signaling here. Wow. I remember counseling a woman years ago, and um, she hated her husband. I spent years talking to her. I read her first John 3. We know we passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And I said to her, you know your husband, even though he may be unkind, he's closer to you than even a brother because he's your husband. That ended up in divorce. She never could grasp that. And I'm not getting into all the hardships of what was going on, but James 3 says it like this. The wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The harvest of righteousness is sown in peace to those who make peace. James is saying everyone is sinful and self-centered, and the wisdom from below demonstrates that, but he's saying that Christ is the one who brings to us mercy. Remember, grace is getting something you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting something that you full well do deserve. And so a person who will show mercy to people around them have first to come to terms with the fact that God has mercyed me 
and he has, he has mercied you in Jesus. I finish with this. Christ is the great mercy giver. You ever think about it? He's hanging on a cross, and these guys are hurling insults, and they're rejoicing and laughing about his suffering. And how did Jesus respond? Does anybody recall his words? Say it a little louder. Forgive them, Lord, they do not know what they do. That's amazing. He did that for you. He did that for me. And you know that. And now that you know it, that gives the ability through the work of the Spirit for you who have been given mercy, though you heaped that abuse on him as well. Now you can turn around to the people in your life who grind your gears and you can begin to respond in a different way.